This episode of the Best Seats Podcast is brought to you by, well, you. To learn how you can support the show, go to thebestseats.com slash Patreon. Once there, you'll learn how you can get early access to shows, ad-free listening, the ability to submit questions, comments, concerns, and more. Once again, that's thebestseats.com slash Patreon. But enough of that. On to the show. Ever episode 28 of the Best Seats Podcast, the only podcast bringing you interviews with some of the best and most talented folks from the Southern California hospitality industry and beyond each and every episode. I'm your host, Croft McCarthy, founder of The Best Seats. Thank you, as always, to Allie Coyle for providing music for the show. You can find her work at AllieCoyleMusic.com or at any of her family's three restaurants down here in Orange County, California, Fable and Spirit, Dublin 4 Wine Works, Ooh, messed that one up, didn't I? Fable and Spirit, Dublin 4, and Wine Works for everyone. Sorry, we got a holiday weekend coming up. This is, well, I'm recording this portion of the show just before Labor Day. Really looking forward to it. This is a big episode, and obviously, we could use every break we can from the world around us, so a holiday weekend is welcome. As a reminder, if you enjoy the show, please be sure to leave ratings, reviews, wherever you're listening to it. It helps other people discover it, and if you enjoy the content, head to thebestseats.com for more. Uh, as I said, this is releasing, well, if you subscribe over on Patreon, it's releasing the Friday right before Labor Day. We are officially in September, which is absolutely insane. We are still dealing with a global pandemic. Uh, we have an election coming up here in Southern California. We have a heat wave. You know, on the upside, we avoided the mur- uh, the murder hornets, it would seem. But, you know, things are stressful. But this is a really good podcast. Uh, but things are stressful all over the world. And we're going to touch on some of those topics today. Um, as well as some lighter topics too, because quite frankly, we could all use those. But I'm very excited about my guest this week, Rashad Mumne. He is the owner and chief philosopher, coolest job title in the world, of philosophy here in Orange County, California. It is a fast casual Lebanese uh, restaurant and it makes extremely good food, not just falafel. Everything that they do is wonderful. And we're going to dig into that on the show today. We recorded this just about the end of August, give or take. So been a little bit, you know, a week or two um, pre-heat wave, you know, still no murder hornets. So that's a positive. Uh, but I'm really grateful for Rashad for taking the time. This was following, you know, obviously it's kind of faded from the headlines, at least here in the States a little bit, unfortunately. But this was kind of just fresh off the heels of everything that's been happening in Beirut. Um, we're going to dive into that. So there's a little bit of geopolitical talk. But we're definitely going to focus on the geo kind of culinary talk about Lebanese food, you know, kind of that Levant region, what it means to come from there. Um, Rashad is from Beirut, so we're definitely going to talk about his home a little bit, what it means to be bringing Lebanese food to the people um, and what it's like to bring food from that region to a place like Orange County, you know, especially in southern Orange County. It's very historically kind of one dimensional in its food offerings. Um Northern Orange County, much, much more diverse, you know, really fantastic regional cuisines from all over the world. Southern Orange County, pretty much the majority of places for the longest time were, you know, creative new American type of restaurants. What does it mean for Rashad to bring authentic, and I hate that word authentic, but it truly is really, really, really good, 
authentic Lebanese food to people? How are they reacting to it? And what's it like for him to be able to tell his story of growing up in Beirut uh, through food? So this is a really special episode. I'm really grateful for him for taking the time. He's a very, very busy man right now. So for him to be able to sit down um, and do this means a lot. So the, we tried to record this the first time, and we had some technical difficulties on my end, which I apologize for. So this was our second time getting down to take some time and record and really kind of chat about things. So I hope you really uh, love this one. Listen to this one all the way through. There's a lot to talk about, some heavy topics, some light topics, but they're all good topics and things that need to be talked about. So without further ado, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Let's get right to the episode. Episode 28, Rashad Mumna. Hello. Hey, Rashad, how are you? Hi, Crawford. How are you? Doing very well. Thank you so much for taking the time. Yeah, my pleasure. Can you uh, can you hear me well? I can. Yeah. So we should be all all good. Obviously, real quick for anybody listening, we tried to record once before, had some technical issues on my end. So I'm extremely grateful that you were able to kind of reschedule. Uh, this is an interview that I've been looking forward to, A, about the food, but obviously kind of with regards to Lebanese food as a whole and how it relates to kind of the country itself, obviously with everything going on, I'm, I'm very, very appreciative of you be, uh, being able to sit down. Uh, Rashad, My pleasure, yeah. I, yeah, it's going to be exciting. For people that may not know you or philosophy, would you mind giving, giving a quick background on yourself and how philosophy came to be? Yeah, uh, my name's Rashad. I, uh, you know, I started philosophy as a food truck uh, six years ago now. Time flies. I quit my uh, corporate job, kind of cold turkey, and decided I want to go build a brand. And uh, um, you know, months later, I was uh, I was in business. I had a food truck, and philosophy was born. And uh, it grew from there. We started as a truck. We opened a small. Um, um, food hall location and then from there we built an actual real restaurant and uh, you know the journey continues the journey's been a really kind of quick one to go from food truck to popping up I want to say you guys were in 4th Street Market right in Santa Ana correct yeah so we started that was the pop up in 4th Street Market and then or the food hall and then from there we went to a full, full scale restaurant to move all the way to the Kaleidoscope Center I mean that's a pretty quick process there's I mean I can count probably less than one hand on the amount of places that would have kind of a similar story like that. What was that like for you moving kind of so quickly through those different stages? Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it was a quick process. I think to me, to me, it seemed very slow, but uh, I think it was a, it's a rare process. I don't think you find brands that grow from food truck directly to, you know, AAA or A plus plus ranked mall, like the urban spectrum, which we are. So that's the rare part. And, uh, you know, we got lucky. I think part of it is we, you know, we uh, tried really hard to build a really cool brand, a brand that, you know, resonated with people. And that's, I think that's what, uh, you know, that's what people saw and that's what got us our, our success. So early on, I, you know, I was always focused on the long term. I was focused on, you know, building philosophy as, uh, you know, as a brand around Lebanese food and Mediterranean foods. Uh, we started with falafel, but then you know, evolved into you know, broader Lebanese and Mediterranean food. And I think that that focus is what brought me to success. You know, I think it was slow, but you know, everything's slow in that <laughs> front. <laughs> so, yeah, there's definitely nothing yeah. too quickly that happens. Uh, mm-hmm. What was it like doing it with Lebanese food? Because there's so many different foods from that region, kind of that Mediterranean Levant region 
but I think that some of them get misconstrued unless you grew up with it or that's kind of your heritage. I think a lot of people look at some of those, you know, culinary histories and kind of lump them all together, whether, you know, just or unjust. Where did your passion for Lebanese food come from and what was it kind of like pushing a new food truck and then pop up and then obviously kind of sit in dining establishment with Lebanese food, which some customers around this area may not be familiar with? Yeah, a number of answers there. Um, let me start by saying, um, yeah, you're absolutely right. Like um, things get lumped into different categories. For, you know, right now it's Mediterranean food, so it's very popular. So a lot of stuff gets lumped into that, and that uh, I have to say that bothers me a bit. And the reason it does, it's not because you know I'm you know, I'm trying to I'm being territorial or anything. What I I think in the food industry in general, if you're going into the food industry, the food industry is really hard and. It's, it's something that has to be driven by passion and a big part of passion is authenticity. And, you know, I think you really need to be authentic to what you're doing uh, in order for it to be successful. And, you know, really in order for it to be worthwhile putting out there in the world. And to me, that was always my, my driver. That's what always keeps me on is that I am, am I being authentic with my, with myself and my clients and everything I'm putting out there. And so I'm, you know, I'm Lebanese. I, I grew up in Beirut. I, you know, I studied there. I came here when I was 22 years old. And so that's, that's what I know. That's my heritage. And so that's what I was, I'm trying to bring. And, you know, Beirut is on the Mediterranean coast. It's, uh, it's uniquely Mediterranean in its own way. And so, you know, when I say Mediterranean food or Lebanese food, it, it is truly Lebanese food and Mediterranean food. Um, what happens a lot uh, today because Mediterranean food is popular is, you know, anything kind of from that region that's, that's east of, let's say, uh, you know, east of, you know, south of Europe or, North of Africa kind of thing gets lumped into, oh, it's Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that's a marketing thing, really. Um, and it's not always true. You know, there's there's a lot of cultures and cuisines that are different than Mediterranean and that are very powerful and very good in their own right. And so I think I think people should, like, be authentic to what they are and put that, put that out there. Um, so that's the first part of your question. And the second part is how, you know, how was it, you know, pushing that kind of, you know, in a food, a food truck and then, you know, right now in the restaurant. Um, you know, it's like, you know, sometimes it's difficult, sometimes it's not because there's an awareness piece, uh, with what you're selling, mm -hmm. uh, especially with us, like we never sold mass market items. So we never sold things like euros, which is, you know, you know, quintessential, you know, street food from the Mediterranean, but it's not Lebanese. And I wanted to sell the Lebanese version, which is a shawarma. So till this day, you know, people, we an education piece and, uh, and an awareness piece that we, you know, we're always, we're always trying to you know, to build with the customers and, uh, you know, and show early on, it was falafel. We were only selling falafels and that was a challenge because we were only selling, um, it was vegetarian. So there's no meat on the, on our food truck when we started. Uh, but we wanted to be a falafel shop and just, you know, showcase the falafel. And, um, so there was, you know, there's definitely challenges there. The falafel is so, I mean, the one that you do is first of all, unbelievably good. I, I think it just tastes phenomenal. And I think that falafel, you know, my upbringing being on the East Coast, my initial concepts before I started to educate myself about food, my falafel was imagining, you know, the falafel guys in New York City, kind of slinging them mm -hmm. from, you know, the carts and the hero carts and things like that. And mm -hmm. so to kind of really dive into it and kind of learn to appreciate it a little bit more like what you've done with yours has been really kind of a fun experience for me. But I want to talk about shawarma because I think Lebanese food especially especially kind of that Beirut area being such obviously, you know, the port city that it is, it lends itself really, really well to a California diet, to a California kind of palate and those kind of expectations that I think a lot of customers have when they walk in the door of what kind of food they're looking for. 
shawarma though has a massive influence with regards to Mexico that I don't think a lot of people are aware of historically. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So shawarma, you know, we don't know exactly where it came from. I still tried to research it. I couldn't figure out exactly. But it came from some place along the Mediterranean, Turks, Lebanese, Syrians, uh, Palestinians, but really someplace along there is where shawarma came from. And it's spread in that region. Um, naturally, because of its popularity, at the end of the day, it's, it's meat being grilled on a stick. You know, how, mm-hmm. how wrong, you know, you can't go wrong there, right? Yeah, absolutely. And then, you know, they're putting it, you, you put it in the pita bread, and and then you put sauce on it and some veggies, right? That's just a classic. That's kind of like a burger in the Middle East. It's, mm-hmm. it's a classic sandwich. And um, and then, you know, you can see the popularity because all these shawarma, you know, shawarma joints in the street, they have shawarma skewers that are huge with all this meat, like roasting in real time, right there in people's views. It's not hidden in the back. And so, you know, quickly became the quintessential street food in the, uh, in the Middle East. And so the history is, and the, there was a big migration, particularly from Lebanon, in you know, the early 20th century, uh, the late 19th century, to South America in general, particularly to Mexico. So the Lebanese, the story goes, took with them, obviously, their shawarma-making technique, uh, which is big in, in that area. And they brought it to Mexico and other parts of uh, uh, you know, South America. And then that evolved. That obviously took off there, but then it took off with the local culture and the local ingredients and just the way things were done locally. And that became a pastor. And then they used they started using different kinds of meat for it. They put the pineapple on there. You know, they, they make them in tacos, and that's that's how El Pastor, um, you know, it's, uh, is uh, wants to be. And now, of course, you know, El Pastor is a very, you know, uh, you know South American, Mexican, Hispanic uh, cuisine. Uh, but the origins came from shawarma. It's uh, you know, an interesting, interesting journey for sure. It's kind of the original, you know, fusion food, if you will. And I know that that, right. word, that word gets tossed around so, so much, but it really is just taking the practice and kind of the, the history of one cuisine and one culture and utilizing the ingredients that are around you to do kind of the exact same thing, but obviously with different flavors and differentiating kind of skill sets a little bit. Is there... Here's the amazing part. Um, you know, in Southern California, selling shawarma, it's just really interesting, right? Because now you have mm-hmm. the cuisines, you know, migrating from, you know, you got the El Pastor coming from South America, and you got the shawarma people, the original ones coming from Lebanon or, you know, Turkey or whatever. And here they are <laughs> selling two different versions of this. That it's kind of come full circle. And <laughs> uh, over here, you know, Southern California is just, you know, it's an amazing, amazing, you know, coming from uh, coming from the Levin that's very, uh, you know, historically diversified. Um, coming here is just it's just amazing. I mean, you have it's a crucible of cultures from all over the world. I think beyond anything, you know, uh, history has seen before. And that's just one example of that. You know, people take it for granted, but that, you know, to me as an immigrant, like I, you know, I, I really appreciate that. Any possibility of an al pastor shawarma somewhere down the road for philosophy? Well, we've done shawarma tacos. Oh, see, um, see. <laughs> we've done shawarma tacos. We do falafel tacos at philosophy, and then at some point we um, we had shawarma tacos on our menu. Um, so yeah, I mean you know look it's it's again it's it's meat roasted on the spit with spices and then you you know that's gonna taste good in a tortilla it's gonna taste good in a pita it's gonna taste good with anything you know it's no I think it's the universal salad. concept yeah. Take, yeah take meat put it on bread eat it and then, yeah yeah put, it's gua- just... put guacamole on it it's gonna taste great like you know it's not 
just a matter of preference, <laughs> and, uh, you know, whether it's Taco Tuesday or Shawarma Friday, maybe, you know. I love it. I mean, we got to talk about the big elephant in the room, which is obviously COVID-19. We're recording this towards the end of August. Um, you know, this podcast started first week of April, but obviously we've been dealing with this thing at this point over six months uh, from shutdowns to outdoor dining to all kinds of various things. I know that there's supposed to be a potential announcement this week, um, potential updates from Governor Newsom, at least here in California. But obviously, being in the restaurant industry, what's this experience been like from you? And I, I want to note saying that obviously, philosophy, you're not set up for a standard kind of dine-in, dining room experience. You kind of are able to do that kind of fast casual to get people kind of in and out and kind of get them and keep them moving. But what's it been like regardless being in the restaurant industry during these past six months? Yeah, it's tough, you know, makes you... Uh which you it makes you think about you know was it the right was it the right industry to be in, uh, but luckily you know it's given my passion for me so you know this this sounds like this is a hiccup, um, you know it's transformative you know we've, uh, we've had to look at our business really carefully and um, you know transform it to to the local environment which I think is gonna in one shape or form is gonna stick around for a while. Um, and you know, there's no other way to describe it. I mean, it's tough, and it's in, you know, everybody's in survival mode right now, and you know, so are we. You know, you're. Uh, it's not just about dining in and dining out. People are. There's a lot of people. There's still a lot of traffic everywhere. People are not going out as much as they used to, and it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, that's what's driving, uh, you know, the decrease in sales and a lot of the economy. So you know, it's just tough. Has the way that the business is set up been beneficial in any way, or has it put any kind of barriers in front of you that you didn't expect before? No, you know, I'm, I gotta say, I mean, it's, it's not easy right now. Again, it's very tough for me and for other restaurants, but I'm, I count my blessings because I'm, I'm lucky. I, you know, I, uh, our restaurant is not huge and it's, it's a casual restaurant. So it's, you know, the food is geared towards, um, takeout uh, if you want and then it also does well at takeout right you know like a you know like grilled meats over rice you know they you put them in the box take them home it, it does well it, it, mm-hmm. it, uh, it transports well so we're lucky in that sense and we've seen a lot of, a huge increase in our takeout business um, and then we're also in an outdoor mall so people can still come there sit uh, outside social distance we have a little patio um, so, you know, despite that, we've had a lot of losses in sales, but I can only imagine what it's like for, you know, a larger restaurant that has a much bigger indoor seating that doesn't have outdoor options where it's about the experience of, of visiting that restaurant and not necessarily about, you know, the food taken to go per se, kind of like it is for us, you know, for us, it's all about the food. That's what the fast casual you know, industry is about. Yeah, and so I I can only I can only imagine you know it's it's hard enough for me I can only imagine how hard it is for you know these larger restaurants that you know have, you know rely on the customer experience in their store uh, to go through this and that's why a lot of them are closing you know you're seeing a mm-hmm. lot of these you know bigger restaurants are closing um, so. I should mention anybody listening, we're talking about the Kaleidoscope Center here in Irvine, California. Basically, kind of the the definition of the California outdoor shopping mall basically any kind of b-roll Irvine footage spectrum. you've seen yeah urban spectrum center sorry not kaleidoscope um anyone that yeah. you've seen kind of walking around in b-roll footage in a movie it looks exactly like this place while it is outdoors and you do have a ton of space it is an outdoor mall like you mentioned obviously retail sales are down shopping is kind of down across the board has that definitely kind of have you seen those numbers really kind of dwindle with just the foot traffic yeah you see it and you know the interesting thing is people people associate uh 
the you know the decreasing traffic to the government, which you know you can blame the government for a lot of things. But what I what I've noticed is that it's not it's not the government shutdowns or mandated shutdowns that's driving the the decrease in foot traffic. It's the people themselves. It's the virus itself. And I, I say that because you know I know that people before the government did anything, people started getting scared, and you saw it across the board where. Restaurants lost, you know, there's a lot less traffic in the malls, lost, a lot less traffic outside. People started hoarding. Uh, all those, you know, those smart on the supermarkets that happened early on, those happened before any government mandating shutdown. So it's people who are driving this, and that's driven by fear of the virus. Um, and right now it's still, it's still there, you know, and I, you know, I think no matter what the government does, the government's going to help a bit. You know, as long as the virus is there and people are scared of it, it's going to be a problem that we're going to have to deal with. How has business been the past uh, month or so? I would say, what, it's been about two months since we did the outdoor dining only announcement, give or take. Things have kind of settled. We're in a little bit of a heat wave right now. But again, how have things kind of been the past month now that we've kind of stabilized at least a little? Yeah, so it's, you know, it's been steadily increasing, I would say, since, you know, since the, those first three months of like complete lockdown. So uh, let's say March, April, uh, May were the worst. And then starting June, start to pick up. Uh, we're still down from last year. Obviously, those were our peak months, but you know it's been better. And uh, right now, it will start to decrease again because kids are going back to school. The heat wave is strong, so we're we're bracing. <laughs> we're bracing for another slowdown. Survive and just survive and move yeah. on. That's the name of the game. Uh, exactly, Rashad. There's no way that I can have somebody with your experience on the show and not talk about the things that are going on um, over in Beirut specifically. Obviously. There's no way that anybody who's listening to this has not heard, obviously, about the explosion that rocked the harbor there. I mean, just everything that's going on in Beirut right now in Lebanon as a whole is is so hard to watch from just where I stand in my own life. I can't even imagine what this has been like for you. Can you kind of just dive into what this entire experience has been like to watch? I mean, first and foremost, friends and family back there, I hope they're you know safe and weren't too deeply affected by this and everything else that's been going on. Yeah, thank you for asking. I mean, my family's safe. We uh, we've had you know we had minor damage in you know our house in Lebanon and my aunt's house is in Lebanon. But you know, compared to the people who were mostly impacted, it was, it was not much. Um, but it's you know it's just very sad. You know, there's a couple of days there when this thing happened where I can do any work. I was you know I was, I was crying. Um, just watching these pictures, you know, you're seeing your home, your country being torn apart uh, and torn down, like literally being destroyed. I mean, that was the city I grew up in, those streets that were all destroyed. That's where I, you know, I used to hang out. Um, so it, it was just, it was extremely saddening. I mean, it made me quit social media. I, for, after a couple of days, I couldn't, I couldn't be on social media anymore. And I, I literally yeah. deleted all the apps. I mean, I had to, it was this bad for me. I had to disconnect from it. Um, but, you know, the broader picture is, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, Lebanon is, is just, you know, torn. It's a beautiful country with amazing history and amazing people. And it's got this, you know, geopolitical, national, you know, international uh, interference in it that's been going on forever and, you know, it continues till this day. Uh, you know, but with that, it's a very, very corrupt government, um, you know, that's been around. Most of these guys in the government in Lebanon have been around since the 80s. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, you know, the Speaker of Parliament has been there since I was a little kid in the 80s. 
I mean, you know, and then now there's an election, people are voting for him again. It's like, like you know, imagine, imagine like voting for Nixon right now. Like your, you know, your 2020 election, it's like Reagan versus Nixon all over again. Yeah. That's how it is in Lebanon. Like we were voting for people from 30 years ago, 40 years ago sometimes. Well, um, I can't really, I can't really say that us in America are any different. We definitely like to hang on to our, our relics as well. So I don't know if that's yeah. an exclusively Lebanese problem. I think that that's what we're looking around in general. We're like, huh, maybe we should do some new people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're right. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's what it is. And unfortunately, you know, you see it. It's one of those things where it's, it's a system is so corrupt and so broken. It's, there's no way it's going to get fixed from, you know, from the inside. It's got to be rebuilt from scratch. And that's what's happening in Lebanon right now with riots and, uh, and everything. You know, and this big blast, you know, as saddening as it was and as heartbreaking as it is, to destroy, you know, a big part of the city and you know, a lot of people's lives were lost. Um, you know, it's it's just you know if you really think about it, it's, it's you know it was it was something that was going to happen. You know, with, you know you take all the incompetence, take all the uh, you know all the you know, geopolitical um, issues that are being settled in the small country of Lebanon. You know, whether it's scores between Iran and the U.S. or Israel and uh, the Palestinians, all being settled in Lebanon, and uh, you know things like that are about to happen. You know, it's very sad. I, I've never been to Beirut. It's a city that deeply fascinates me. It's a place that I really want to go to. Lebanon as a country is somewhere that I desperately want to travel to. Uh, there's so much that I don't think the average American understands about that region. You, know, you, you talked about all the geopolitical ties and all the different kind of tensions and you know the way that Beirut really acts as this kind of hub to get you out into that entire region. You know, being from Lebanon now here in the States, there's obviously, a, you know, we're grappling with our own kind of geopolitical issues, especially with regards to immigration and things like that. And I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of American politics because I want to try and keep it food centric, but there's no way you can talk about food and not talk about politics because food is inherently political. What's it been like for you this past, you know, ever since kind of the explosion rocked it and put the, the eyes of the world on it to be a Lebanese man from Beirut here in the States, being able to serve kind of your country's home cuisine. What's that entire kind of process been like the past couple of weeks? Um, you know, to be honest, it's very, um, makes me very happy to be serving Lebanese food here and makes me very happy owning a restaurant. It's one of the reasons that actually, um, you know, I didn't know this going into the restaurant industry, but now that I'm in it, I realize it's one of the reasons I, that probably attracted me to this industry is that, you know, you really, you know, food is very communal and it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's the lowest common denominator and it's, you know, everything goes away with, you know, over a meal and the food and, you know. You know, you see, uh, you know, I'll share this example, like in my restaurant as a Lebanese Mediterranean restaurant serving shawarma, kebabs and falafel, you know, I see in my restaurant clients that, you know, used to come and, you know, eat together in the Middle East, you know, a hundred years ago, but don't, you know, are fighting now, you know, so I see Israelis, I see Palestinians, I see, you know, all kinds of religions um, that are, you know, maybe at war, uh, but, yeah. Iranians and Turks, like everybody, you know, like bringing out workers, you know, don't like each other back then, but here in Orange County and or in the U.S. where it's a crucible and everybody's, you know, living their own lives and happy, they're, they're sharing a meal and they're all enjoying, you know, the same food. And it, you know, I see that as very hard, you know, very, very heartwarming to me. And especially when, you know, when there's the, you know, these you know, geopolitical crises or, you know, you know, issues in Lebanon, it's just, you know, you're proud to, to be part of uh, that unifying factor, which is food. So that's how I feel. 
for customers that may be kind of like me, they walk in, they've never been to Beirut, they've never been to Lebanon. Is there any education that you're kind of able to get? Are you able to kind of use the food to help people feel like they may have traveled? Yeah, well, you know, that's, you know, that's, uh, people, I, you know, my hope happens is that people enjoy, enjoy it and, you know, they're tasting something different and they're tasting something unique. And then, you know, that, that makes you, you know, romanticized for, uh, you know, the origins where, for, you know, where it came from. And, you know, philosophy, you know, I feel like I, you know, I try to incorporate you know, a bit of what Lebanon is or what, you know, the Levant is. It's, it's, it's multicultural and you see it in like, you know, the different aspects of the food we have. But it's also, it's also a fun, you know, fun place, fun, welcoming place. And our brand is very fun and, unique mm-hmm. and you, know, uh, you know, spicy, which is how, you know, how Mediterranean I think is. It's, it's not spicy from a food perspective, but spicy from a life perspective, you yeah. know, the, you know, joie de vivre and the love of life. That's very, you know, those are all Mediterranean traits. And, you know, we really try to incorporate them in, in the experience of philosophy. So. <laughs> that's good. That's that's awesome to hear. Um, obviously, it's one thing for kind of us to listen to the news here and hear what we do. It's another thing entirely to actually have family that are living in the city. You know, what's it been like kind of talking with them? And what is what is the mood like in Beirut right now? I mean, obviously, a little bit of unrest, to say the least. But what's the kind of mood been like? Um, you know, it's complicated. So we, you know, people my age have lived through civil war. My family has lived through civil war. And unfortunately, when, you know, with this happening with the blast and all the events there leading up to the blast, there were protests before COVID-19 and even during COVID-19 about in Lebanon. So with all these events, uh, people are remembering the civil war, which is a brutal, brutal uh, you know, war, uh, war that ha- that took on you know 15 years and you know took away many lives. And so people are remembering that era, and so it's very scary in, in a sense. Uh, a lot of people I know just want to leave and immigrate, whereas you know, five years ago they didn't. They wanted to build, uh, you know, build their lives in Lebanon, and now now people want to leave. I tell you, the people are, who are staying are extremely and there's like a revolt going on there. They want to start from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's those two, those two, you know, those two, there's a lot of people are fed up and they just can't take it. They want to make families and they want to leave. And then the rest, especially the young people who are saying, you know, they're, they're revolting and they want to build a new, build a new country. Yeah. There's so much history and so much of that history can kind of be felt in the food a little bit. You kind of feel those kind of tendrils that, that go back, you know, hundreds of years because these dishes have been around for so long. Thousands. Yeah, they're, they're so, so, so long. What did I say, hundreds? Oh, yeah, it was off. I was thinking U.S. history. No, the, yeah, thousands. We're talking a lot longer. Um, when you kind of have those tendrils and you have that kind of natural and understandable, you know, talking with people that want to get out of that situation, is there any fear that you may lose some of that history as it relates to kind of the culinary when you have like a diaspora like that of people just wanting to get out of a bad situation? Um, you know, from a culinary perspective, I think that's the right thing. Like, you know, what happens is people, it's always a positive from a culinary perspective because the more people leave, the more they take it to other places. And, yeah. you know, the more you see that culture spread actually and grow. And that's, that's the amazing part of the culinary side of things. Um, but, uh, however, from a, I know I say this, but like from a, from a country perspective, from, you know, when I, when I look back at the beautiful place I grew up in, uh, you know, and I, you know, I, Grew up in the Civil War, but then, you know, in like 1991, the Civil War ended. And so I've had, and I left in 2000, so I had a good nine years and a few years where I was going a lot back and forth, you know, good 10, 15 years there where, 
honestly, it was the best place on earth for me. It was a beautiful mm-hmm. country, just full of life. And I can't tell you, you know, all the great things about it uh, in this podcast. Uh, and I, you know, now you see that being destroyed and you get a sense that it's not going back to that anytime soon. It's going rapidly in, in a very, you know, in an opposite direction. And that's, you know, that's very sad. And that, you know, that's, that's extremely sad. Uh, and I don't know how that's going to be restored, if any, if it is going to be restored in our lifetime. You did mention the positive thing, and I'm glad you touched on it, about when you do have kind of an exodus of people from an area, not that you want that, but you do get the advantage of kind of that, that, that pollination effect almost. It's kind of like when a flower releases its pollen. You're going to get that cuisine brought to other areas. And ultimately, I think that that can only kind of help to educate and create interest and hopefully geopolitical interest. Ultimately, if somebody eats it and they understand the region that it's from and they look at the fact that there's such kind of upheaval going on politically, is there kind of any hope for that, that the continued eyes of the world will not just support right now, but it won't be like, you know, there's so many other news stories where the world really cares about something, right? It trends on Twitter and then three days later, something new has happened and we kind of forget and move on because I do think that it's, it's too important in any situation like this, whether it was Beirut or anywhere else, to just kind of give that week of support and then move on. You know, what can the world, what can the non-Lebanese, what can we do to help support and kind of make sure that no one gets stuck in a situation like that? You know, uh, um, with social media, I think it's natural where, you know, things become popular for a while and then, you know, they fall off the national stage. But, you know, at least, at least things are getting national attention. I think that's very important. You know, and, you know, even if they fall off the national stage, people, you know, now know what's going on and more aware. Mm-hmm. And that over over time, in my opinion, I'm you know I'm a very positive person. I'm you know I'm just naturally positive. I think over time that will affect change to the positive in general overall. And I think you see it. You see more you know more progressiveness you know, accelerating. Um, and more awareness, not just about, you know, geopolitical issues necessarily, but about, you know, wrong, you know, things that are happening that are not right or wrong or just, and you see more, more calls for justice, whether it's Black Lives Matter here or, you know, um, you know, overturn the government in Lebanon, you know, you, you see that a lot more. And that's because, of, you know, there's more awareness brought to it by social media, even if it, if it trends for a while and then goes away. And I don't think that was, that was ever the case in history. You know, if, you know, if a dictator in some, you know, obscure part of the world was abusing their people, no one would know about it. And, you know, you know that would go on forever. But now, the, yeah. you know, now things are starting to change. Um, so. You mentioned the number of years that you were still in, in Lebanon after the Civil War ended. Are there any food items from those kind of years or your time there in general that you really, really love that have never made their way either never made their way in a popular way stateside or just one of those items that you are a little maybe apprehensive about putting on the philosophy menu, but are there any kind of staple dishes that you love that kind of bring you really happy memories that you would think about putting on the menu that may be new to kind of more common diners? Yeah. So there's a lot, there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, I would say I'll pick the street food, you know, cause you know, Lebanese cooking, there's home food and street food and home food is a whole new, uh, other, um, you know, other, uh, other, you know, both part in, in its own mm-hmm. right. But cheese food in, in particular, there's a lot, and I wish I could put them on the on the philosophy menu. But you know, you they're cooked in a specific way, or they need uh, they need certain oh, okay, uh, certain it. equipment, which I which I really can't. But for example, there is uh, there's what we call manaish, which are essentially 
you know, breakfast pizzas if you want. And uh, kind of like shawarmas, uh, you know, who knows where it started and now it's all over the place. I mean, Ish is, you know, is, is the precursor to pizza or the pizza form of, uh, it's what pizza is in Lebanon. It's like, you know, how pizza is different in Italy and mm-hmm. there's pizza in France and other parts of the Mediterranean. Uh, same thing. So it's, it's dough that's made fresh and then with cheese on it and baked right there, taken out. And then there's, you know, they put herbs on it, like za'atar, or sometimes it's just za'atar alone. And then you put veggies, just fresh veggies in there. You roll it and you eat it as a sandwich. Uh, but it's essentially, you know, essentially pizza without tomato sauce. Yeah, that's and that's very popular. Awesome. Uh, yeah, that hasn't taken mainstream here. And I think it's because it's just like it's a breakfast item. Unlike it's not a lunch or dinner item typically. Yeah. Um, not that it can't be consumed for lunch or dinner, but it needs its own oven. Um, and then the other one is, uh, and you can get those as like, you know, these specialty, you know, mom and pop, uh, Arabic Lebanese joints, but, you know, here in Orange County, there's a lot of them in Anaheim. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other one is knepe, which is this like sweetness, sweet dessert heaven. It's like a cheese. I really don't know how to describe it's, it. it. You no, it's an up. amazing dish. I know exactly <laughs> what you're talking about. Exactly what you're talking about. And so that's going to happen here at some point, but it's such a specialty dish that you, um, you need, you know, it, it just needs to be done in it. So we try to do it as a philosophy, but like we won't, we, we can't give it justice. You know, you almost have to have a restaurant just dedicated to it uh, or things around it for it to work. Yeah. And I then can, I can uh, see that one know. having like a pastry chef needed to kind of make that one accurate. Yeah. There's other things. There's tons of stuff like that. There's like Turkish coffee. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it's called Turkish coffee, but it's really, you know, drank all over the Middle East. So. Uh, and it's, it's the way you, you make the coffee, you ground it really fine and you boil it. It's similar to an espresso. Um, uh, but you know, you could do, you know, espresso is really big here, but Turkish coffee that, you know, it's an older style. It's not, it's not big and you know, it's a very unique coffee. You put cardamom in it. Um, so you know, things like that. Ice cream, you know, gelato came from, you know, what Arabic ice cream is right now. And so, you know, Lebanese ice cream per se is very, very similar to what you get in gelato. And it's got a very, and I'm not even familiar with how you do it, but it's got a unique process doing it. And, you know, think of just gelato with like Middle Eastern Lebanese flavors. Um, so all those are not, they're not mass market here at all by any means. And really, some of them you can't even find. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll find them some, <laughs> we'll find them soon. I'm working on a couple, but we'll see. Oh. Good. I mean, they all sound fantastic to me, so especially the breakfast pizza. I mean, if we can make breakfast burritos a thing, there's no reason we shouldn't make that a thing. It, I'm all in on that. That sounds awesome. <laughs> what is your personal favorite item on the philosophy menu right now? Uh, let's see. Well, I'm, I am I got to say the Lebanese burger. That thing is really good. Yeah. Uh, we just added it um, maybe less than a month ago. And then we, we launched it for Burger Week. It was probably our um, you know, best-selling item for a couple of weeks there. It still sells on. And it just reminds me of my childhood eating those burgers, just the way they're presented in Lebanon. Um, and, you know, you put french fries inside, you put coleslaw, and you put, like, a fried mozzarella patty on it. So, you know, these days I'm addicted to that. See, that sounds amazing, but it also sounds like something I would really want at about 2.30 in the morning after leaving the bars. That, that, that yeah, sounds I mean, pretty it's perfect. That, it's, that kind of, it's that kind of thing. And that, you know, I, I, I've always wanted to do this burger. I hesitated putting it on, on the menu for the longest time. But finally, in Burger Week this, week, this year, we did it. And I'm so glad we did because the response has been 
amazing. Um, so that's been great. And then I love the other thing, just another like classical item is I love our, uh, our, our kebab sandwiches, our sweet style kebab sandwiches, where we also pick fries in the sandwich. There's a scene there, right? Yep. Um, and, and wrap them and then panini press them. So those are really good for me. That sounds awesome. I absolutely love that. Are you guys doing any catering or any kind of third party stuff? I know for a little bit you did launch another program. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, yeah, so we do uh, we we do a lot of caterings uh, in general, and then we uh, we were all, we were working on kind of a, a dinner specialty dinners, you know, you know, eat and serve meals before COVID hit, and then COVID hit, so now we started doing um, these really cool um, dinners and things that are you know hard, you know, not necessarily restaurant food, things that you know you bake in the oven, you cook on the stovetop, that kind of thing. And then you take home and you heat uh, for your family and then you have a nice warm dinner uh, for your family. And the dishes are a bit more unique. They're, uh, you know, they're, they're made that week to order. They're, um, and they're not, you know, they're not fast food. They're not something you get in the restaurant menu. Mm-hmm. And we called it, we, we separated it from philosophy. It's part of philosophy, but we called it Plato's Kitchen, you know, just to show that something that we are, you know, that's a specialty menu, that's a, that's a different menu. And it's really, you know, catering, specialty catering dishes, eat and serve meals that you take home and you, you eat with your family. Um, you know, we got stuff like Moroccan chicken tagine, uh, like a pomegranate chicken, um, you know, like a lamb, uh, things like that that are just a bit more unique and uh, wholesome. So. Which all sounds unbelievable. I'm completely sold on all of it, so I'm good on that. But I'm also biased. I love Lebanese food, and all of that sounds really, really, really good, even if it just riffs on things. And again, the pomegranate chicken especially, do not sleep on that. If you're listening and you live in the area, order and look into that when that's available because that dish is ridiculous. That was like, my favorite, goosebumps. yeah. yeah I just got like, it's a good, like a goosebump moment, I'd swear, like talking about that thing. Yeah, that was my favorite. It's inspired by this old Palestinian dish called Musakhan. It's made with caramelized onions, a lot of sumac. Um, and you know, we made it, you know, we made our own version of it. And it's, it's literally one of my favorite dishes. And also my favorite, like my surprise dish, like when we came out of it, when we made it and it came out and I'm like, wow, this is amazing beyond anything I've, I've, I've done before. So it was a bit surprising how good it was. That is a really good one. Uh, Rashad, what are the, we obviously have had a hell of a six months. What are the next six months look like for you and for philosophy? You know, we're just like any other restaurant. I think we're trying to survive, um, and then we're trying to um, just do interesting things to keep uh, our customers engaged and keep the customers coming back and happy. And I think that's what we're focused on. And hopefully, we get out of this. And you know, I think the people who survive this are going to come out stronger. It's going to be consolidation in the industry. Um, you know, we'll go from there. But for now, survival mode and uh, and. You know, unique items, look for unique items that are coming to our menu, uh, on a, you know, launching one after the other here. That's the name of the game. Just survive and do your best. Well, Rashad, <laughs> I know that you are a very busy man. I don't want to take up too much of your time. Uh, if people wanted to follow you or follow, now I know you said you're taking a social media break, so I guess if they want to follow Philosophy online and kind of find them, restaurant online, where can they do that? Yeah, so uh, they could follow Philosophy on uh, Philosophy on Instagram. Uh, philosophy on Twitter and philosophy falafel on Facebook. Uh, obviously, our website philosophy.com. Uh, you can follow me personally, Chief Philosopher, uh, on Instagram and OC Rashad on Twitter. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I'm, on, I'm on and off on social media. I do a lot of social media fast. Yep. Uh, but definitely follow philosophy on there. So. 
That's like the coolest job title, Chief Philosopher. That's fun that you get yeah. to make, you just like make your own one. Like, yeah, I like that. I'm going with that. I love that. Yeah, exactly. You get your own title. You have your own company. <laughs> well, Rashad, I, the job. No, seriously, I, yeah, make it up. I would. I don't know what it would be, but I absolutely would. <laughs> Uh, I can't thank you enough for taking the time um, and not just the time, but the transparency too. obviously with everything going on, there are no kind of certain answers yet, uh, but obviously wishing the best for your friends and family back in Beirut. Um, and obviously we just hope that it's continued success for philosophy out here in the time being. Thank you so much, Crawford. I really appreciate you doing this and uh, it was a pleasure. Absolute pleasure. All right, Rashad, I will talk to you soon. Take care and enjoy the rest of the day. You too. Take care. Uh, bye-bye. Thank you to Rashad Momnef for taking the time to sit down on this pokey little podcast and talk about things, geopolitical, food, history, family, and so forth. Um, Really not some easy things to talk about there, watching your kind of home go through the things that are happening in Beirut right now. So thank you to Rashad for taking the time. If you're in the area, please check out Philosophy. Uh, The food is fantastic. It's extremely tasty. A lot of it is very, very healthy. And God knows we could all use that since we didn't really get a summer. We don't have beach bodies. But Lord knows that after a couple months of stay-at-home orders and quarantine, we all have some sort of body and it's definitely not a beach one. So get out and eat some healthy food. Get out and eat some good food. It really, really, it makes my heart happy. I've had it. I think it's freaking delicious. You will think so too. Um, And if nothing else, it's a way to kind of travel and experience a different culture in a time where you cannot travel, unfortunately. So anyways, I hope you enjoyed it. That was a heavy one. I know, but it's a good one. Again, I uh, thank you as always for the time. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can go to patreon.com slash the best seats to get early access to the show, submit questions, comments, concerns, and more. Thank you to Rashad for taking the time. Thank you to all the guests who have been taking the time. Again, I hope you enjoy Labor Day. If you are listening to this on Patreon, if you're listening to it after when it launches to the public, I hope you're recovering from a really fun Labor Day. And I will see you very soon. Take care. The Best Seats Podcast is an original production of The Best Seats. It is written, edited, produced, and owned by myself, Crawford McCarthy, founder and owner of The Best Seats. It is recorded in the Liso Viejo, California. It is subsidized through generous donations through patreon.com slash the best seats. The following are names that have subscribed at the highest tier, aka norm status, and thus allow me to produce the show each and every episode. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. Here are the supporters. Alexander Cook, Katie Cassie, Eric Lutz, Serena Warino, Cheryl McCarthy. Thank you for your support 